Welcome to Vine Pair, the podcast about conversations we have with a glass in hand. From New York City, I am Adam Teeter. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal. And Zach, today we're talking about a question we get really, really, really often from our readers, which is when people throw around this term varietally correct, like, oh, I'm having a wine and it tastes so varietally correct. What do they actually mean when they're saying that? And is there even such a thing as varietally correct? Well, what that what means what that means is um, either they're a an aspiring sommelier, or I mean, they're someone who's aspiring to pass an exam where being able to identify wines blind matters, which fine, whatever, it's a thing, or they're full of shit. Um, right, I wanted the full of shit comment. That's what I was waiting for. <laughs> yeah, because because the thing about it is like varietally correct is like a lot of other things. It's kind of in the eye of the beholder. And we really don't, there's no, there's no like absolute clear like sense of like, this is what Pinot Noir is. Pinot Noir is exactly this wine. And if you get a wine that tastes like this, then you have made correct Pinot Noir. Now, there are probably things that Pinot Noir shouldn't taste like. You know, if your Pinot Noir is jet black and super tannic and has 16.5% alcohol, you're probably drinking, you know, Pinot Noir either blended with something or that has some things added to it um, to maybe appeal to people who want to think they're drinking Pinot Noir but really like Cabernet or something. (laughs) But for the most part, there's not really a single uh, clear archetype for virtually any wine, even the really classic varietals that we know of. I mean, think of the the best example to this I can think of is Chardonnay, which can be a million different things. And people, even, you know, sommeliers and my colleagues and stuff will talk about, oh, this wine is varietally correct. And what they really mean is it's in a familiar style. And that's really what the term has come to mean. It means, you know, this Chardonnay from Chablis tastes like the previous expressions of that grape from that place that I've had before. It is recognizable to me. I can sit down and taste it in a blind setting and get it uh, correct with some degree of confidence. And that's cool. But I mean, there's no reason in the world that the average wine drinker or even the average sommelier, frankly, should really care about that. Like what we should care about is that the wine is well-made and tastes good and that it's in some way related to the varietal or place that's on the label. But if does it have to be, you know, hue exactly to this, previously established uh, vision of what the wine should be? I don't think so. And that would be an incredibly stagnant and boring wine world. Yeah, but most people, right. Okay. So I agree with what you're saying. Um, I think it's a lot of, you know, bullshit. I think there's a lot of stuff in the wine world. that's a lot of bullshit uh, to be quite honest, but I mean, it still is established in the wine world that that this exists, right? So, you know, you have a lot of critics that will still say, well, this Chardonnay doesn't taste varietally correct, so therefore it's not Chardonnay. We're still putting this label, whether you and I like it or not, we're still putting this label on most of these wines, right? I mean, that, this is still how they're being judged in blind tasting contests and things like that, right? So, I mean, do, do we need to embrace it if that's what's happening? Well, again, I think, as always, you know, the there's a little bit of nuance here that's maybe important to understand slightly, which is, I think there's something to be said about a, a wine being that's made from a single varietal, and let's stick with single varietal wines for the time being because blends are a lot harder to kind of talk about this with. It's important that the wine be, I think, vaguely recognizable as being made from the grapes that it, the grape that it purports to be made from. Because if it doesn't, then we're really kind of in this world of like, does it even 
matter? You know, are, are we what are we talking about here? So there should be some fidelity to this idea of a varietal, you know, that Sauvignon Blanc should be kind of grapefruity and lime and maybe have a little bit of a grassy quality and not be, you know, super full bodied. You know, you can probably turn Sauvignon Blanc into just about anything if you really want. But most people would say that if you're a consumer and you're going to the, sh- to the store or you're in a restaurant and you order a glass or a bottle of Sauvignon Blanc and it tastes nothing like any Sauvignon Blanc you've ever had before, you have every right to be annoyed, upset, you know, ask for something else, etc. So there, there does have there is some truth to the idea that the wine should be recognizable. But at the same time, I don't think there's any way in which, you know, the, the idea of varietally correct should be the principal marker for quality. And I think that's where we get into trouble because varietally correct, and again, coming at this from the perspective of a sommelier and from someone who's set for exams and things like that, varietally correct, again, just means that you can recognize it in a blind setting in, in this context. And so, you know, there's lots of quote-unquote varietally correct wines that kind of suck. I mean, they're not very good. They're just really recognizable. And as someone who's sitting for an exam, I love those wines. They're great. They're easy to get. You don't mistake them for anything else. But they're not wines I would want to buy or drink on my own. And in fact, some of them I loathe tasting because, you know, you have to do it to to stay sharp, but they're not fun. That open bottle in my fridge just gets dumped out three days later because I'm not actually going to ever come back to it. So, you know, varietally correct is, is about you know, sort of ease of recognition if it, uh, more than anything else. It's not about quality. But is there, I mean, I think we're getting into a deeper conversation than varietally correct here, which is that, well, then how do we, is is there a true way to even assess wine in the first place, right? So like, is the <laughs> Let's idea- get super philosophical right, like, on but, this podcast. Come on, you know, like, is there a way at all? You know, I've had, I've had critics argue to me, like, there is truly a right and a wrong way to make wine. There is truly a way a wine should taste. And I have always argued the point you're arguing now, which is like, well, there's a way that's recognizable to you, but that doesn't completely mean that it's right or wrong. Um, But for the sake of us having a debate here and not completely arguing, I'm going to take the other side, which is that, you know, maybe there is a right and a wrong way that a wine should taste because just in the same way that we assess IPAs in the beer world and say, well, this doesn't taste like an IPA. I don't care that you use, you know, a bunch of, you know, Cascade hops and things like that, Centennial, what have you. This doesn't taste the way an IPA is supposed to taste. You didn't make an IPA. Is it fair to say like, look, I get that you used, you know, Merlot grapes, but you made a wine that doesn't taste like Merlot. You didn't make Merlot. You made a bad wine. Yeah, I, I mean, I mean, well, I think bad is kind of the word I, is not the word I would use here. I would say you maybe made a confusing wine. Um, I think you know there are there's sort of the correct way to make wine in the sense of like a wine that is does not have an obvious and evident flaw, like it's not you know riddled with Britannomyces or volatile acidity or all these sort of compounds and things that can go wrong in the winemaking process. You know, the wine isn't like toxic or something like that. Those are obviously like wines that are made clearly improperly. And then there's this whole really difficult, as you pointed out, sort of world of what is good, what is quality. And to to you or to I, quality might mean one thing and to another person, it might mean something else. And again, this is where we get into philosophy more than wine itself. And that's fine. But I will say that um, I have a sympathy for the idea that when you're trying to um, rank or quali- you know, sort of quantify wine or, or ascribe uh, you know, a number to it, if you're a reviewer, that you have to have some sort of system in place and your system might be, you know, how closely does this wine hue to established tradition? And as long as you're transparent about that, then whatever, your your readers or your whatever might 
want super traditional wines that taste exactly the way that the wine they've drank has always tasted. And cool. I mean, that's not super interesting to me, but that's fine. I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with that. I think, and I think we see this in the world of wine all the time. There are definitely tons of winemakers who are content in, in wherever they're from to make a wine that is eminently recognizable, that is quote unquote varietally correct. And that's fine. And I love some of those wines. I mean, they're some of my absolute favorites, but there's also people who are interested in doing something else. And I think it's important to remember that like many of the wines that we now think of as like great and classic and varietally correct and exciting and, and traditional and all these things. I mean, they were, someone made that shit up once a long time ago. I mean, Madeira doesn't exist, but for people sticking it in the holes of ships and going around the world with it and then being desperate enough to drink it and being like, oh wait, this actually is pretty good, even though it is, you know, the opposite of varietally correct. And so I think like, you know, like everything, there's uh, there's just this issue where where people want to, I mean, I guess, sadly, they want to make this simple, and it's a little bit complicated. Well, but like, let me, okay, so let me jump in here then. So, you know, couldn't we now say then that like part of, like the argument you're making, right, is that we're we're too rigid. We, you know, obviously we have to have some sort of system here, but is creativity then being stifled by things like the court of master sommeliers who are saying there has to be some method to judge and be able to recognize wines and therefore, right. I'm getting super esoteric now. And therefore, you know, we're always going to be in the world of variety correct wines, as long as certification matters in every single, you know, realm of being able to talk about and sell those wines. I mean, I think, Yes, I think this. I think yeah, this is I mean, something like, that started with. I think this is something that really, in my opinion, started with the rise of wine criticism and and of and of wine scores in a really systemic way. Because taking it back to blaming Robert Parker, I like it. Well, always blame, it's always Robert Parker's fault. No, I no, agree. I can't stand Robert Parker. Well, I mean, I, I've never met the guy, so I won't speak of him personally. But I think his <laughs> his impact on the industry has definitely been pretty dramatic. And I will say that, like. I think where this a lot of this comes back to is sort of this idea that, you know, with parkerization, you had people trying to make wines from all parts of the world that tasted like classic wines um, from other. And that wasn't a Parker thing entirely. People who set out to make wine here in the United States and other things obviously looked at France and other European models and said, I want to make the best version of, you know, Cabernet Sauvignon that I can that's like Bordeaux, but somehow reflects my my, you know, individual vineyards or whatever and you know hearkening to those archetypal models creates this weird like well what are you making are you making something that is meant to be an imitation of those or are you making a wine that's truly reflective of where it's from you know etc etc this is again kind of a a tangent which i want to get off of but i will say that i think there's something to, to be said about this idea that like varietally correct only matters if you have to sort of buy wine varietally. And we, we are in a place and time here in this country in particular where purchasing wine based on the varietal is what the vast majority of people do. It's what they do in grocery stores and wine shops and restaurants and wine bars, et cetera. And so you have to have some degree of varietal correctness because if you don't, you're not going to know what you're going to get. Right. But So then the, the other argument, though, is that it's not by buying based on varietal correctness or based on varietal, then what you're arguing is buying based on where it's made, right? So that then wouldn't the same argument be true that if I'm buying based on Napa, so if, if Napa becomes the the name of the wine, we stop calling it, you know, Cab from Napa. We just call all wine, all red wines made in Napa with, let's say, 70% Cabernet Sauvignon inside them, Napas, right? Don't they all have to taste like 
Napa's in the same way that we expect all Barolos to taste, you know, in a way what we expect Barolo to taste like, or in a way that we expect all, you know, uh, Chenin Blancs to taste a certain way or the way, not Chenin Blancs, sorry, that's a grape, <laughs> Bordeaux's or Burgundy's, things like that. I mean, what do you think? Oh, boy, it's a tricky one. I mean, I think I think we are slowly getting. I think we're slowly getting to that point with, you know, again to kind of come back to a topic you and I have touched on before. You know, to some of these regions in the in the new world that have a little bit more history, that have a little bit more of a codified sense of their own wine industry, we are getting to a point where I think it's reasonable as a consumer or as a sommelier or whomever to expect a certain stylistic. Um, similarity. And what you see in those places, as we've talked about a little bit, is that the people who don't want to make those wines, they go do something else. They go make a wine from a different grape in a different place, or they don't put the name of the region on there, or they they go outside the bounds. And that same thing is true in other parts of the world, for sure. It definitely is happening in Europe, even in some really established wine regions where you see people, you know, rejecting some of the more stringent laws and being willing to label their wines with, you know, Vin de Table and in, or, you know, or, um, you know, the similar things in other European nations. And they are, they, they're willing to flout those rules or to step outside the system because they want to make the wine they want to make. And it may not be quote unquote varietally correct, or it certainly may not be traditional. And, you know, we don't have enough tradition in this country and in a lot of the new world wine regions to really say like, there is only one correct way to make Napa Valley Cabernet Sauvignon or Willamette Valley Pinot Noir. But there is at this point, kind of an accepted style. Certainly those are wines that show up on people's blind tasting exams. So there, there's some sense that there is a, a centrality to those things. But again, you know, what you learn, <laughs> and you learn this a lot when you're in my shoes and you're sitting for exams, is there's a hell of a lot more examples of those wines and even of old world wines that don't really meet what we can think of as that standard archetype than there are that do. And right. because in the end, People want to, you know, winemakers want to express their sense of place. They want to express themselves and they don't want to make the exact same wine as the 10 wineries down the street are making. They want to do their own thing. And certainly the great wineries, for the most part, do not want to make wine that you could easily mistake for, like I said, everything else that's made in the area. They want to stand out and they may stand out not just through, you know, unfamiliar flavors. It may just be greater quality um, or complexity or things like that, but they're not going to make wine that is so easily recognized in a blind setting. And I think that's fantastic. I think that that should be the goal of a great winemaker is to make a wine that is in its own way unique because that's how you justify charging what you charge for it. You can't just taste like everything else on the market because otherwise what the fuck's the point? Right. I mean, I guess that's true. That is very true. I mean, I think, look, it's such a hard debate to have because I super, I mean, I very much agree with you that I think the term bridally correct is pretty ridiculous because you know it's you know you want the wine ultimately to taste the way it tastes based on the way that you made it or the the place that it was grown you know i mean i remember uh, pretty vividly a urban winery here in the city that had that opened right right when it had opened i went and was tasting with the owner um and he said to me oh you know this doesn't this taste like a taste like a variety varietally correct chablis and i was thinking well these are chardonnay grapes you bought from i think argentina you know like this these this is Chardonnay that tastes like it was grown in Argentina and made in Brooklyn. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> like, why are you trying to tell me that I should be able to confuse this for a French Chablis? It's not the same thing at all. Um, he's like, oh, but it's it's really it's really rightly correct. Um, 
but I think that it's because we use language like this because we don't know what else to say. I yeah. think wine is one of these things that's so intimidating and has become such a high-end product for so many people that we we create these boundaries and these classification systems for it that you don't really see in a lot of other, you know, products. You know, we don't say that like this tomato is a varietally correct tomato. Tomatoes in New Jersey taste very different than tomatoes from, you know, California than tomatoes from, uh, you know, Louisiana, et cetera. It doesn't mean that any of them are any better or any worse. It's based on your taste preferences. You know, New Yorkers tend to go crazy for, you know, New Jersey tomatoes, which to me is nuts because, you know, it's produce grown in New Jersey, which we tend to, uh, <laughs> you know, which is a state we tend to treat as being, you know, a place of uh, immense pollution. But, you know, like that is for the people in this region, a very special tomato in the summer. The same, you know, could be said for peaches and the rivalry between people who live in Georgia and South Carolina and then Californians who don't grow great peaches, sorry, Californians, compared to the the American South. But, you know, we don't say that those things are one is variety correct and the other isn't. I really do think a lot of it just has to do with the elitism that has always been surrounding wine. And I think a lot of what you said earlier is very true. A lot of that stems from the rise of critics. But even before that, it, it stems from the fact that wine has, for the most part, been a beverage that, you know, in a high-end restaurant was always surrounded by a lot of pomp and circumstance. And a person who wore a pin and had specific training in order to be able to pour that wine for you. And because of that, we wound up creating a system in which we judge wines based on wines that have come before them. And yeah. I do think a lot of that's why this natural wine movement, whether, you know, whether you and I agree with it or disagree with it, I mean, we, ha we had a huge, you know, po you know, podcast about, the, about it earlier <laughs> in the yes. season, which I'm sure people can talk to, is a reaction to all of this, yeah. right? Is, is why people are saying like, look, you know, fuck this. Yeah. I don't want to deal with any of this anymore. And I think it's interesting to talk to you about it because, you know, you and I feel very similarly, I think, about natural wine, but we both are still very frustrated by the, you know, the boundaries that wine is still being put in, including this term variety, correct? Yeah. I think, you know, my last point on this is to, to kind of harken back to your imagery from a moment ago about sort of the, the wine drinking experience in a previous era in a restaurant. There was a time and a place when I think, you know, wine lists were way simpler. There were far fewer things on them. Even if there were similar numbers of wines, they came from what, far fewer places. And those places were really legitimately distinct. There hadn't been the same proliferation of varietals across the globe. There wasn't the same proliferation of winemaking technique and technology that had spread to every corner. And so if you liked Bordeaux or you liked you know, Burgundy, or you liked Mosul Riesling, or you liked, you know, Loire Valley Sauvignon Blanc, or pick a thing, you know, those wines were legitimately very distinctive. And there weren't, varietally correct probably wasn't a term that was used, but you knew kind of what you were going to get if you went to one of those things. And now I can pull you examples of each of those wines that you would never, ever, ever put in that place because people in those places now have access to new technology, they have to new technique, they just have a better understanding of the world of wine and they're they want to make whatever they want to make and it may be a bordeaux that tastes nothing like a classic bordeaux it might be an oaked you know sancerre it might be who knows what and i'm not here to tell you that those wines are bad or good and the term varietally correct is a loaded term because the word correct is a loaded term and so i don't really like to use it i think you can talk about some of those wines as being identifiable you know you know archetypal great but, you know, that's fine. You know, Beethoven is archetypal, but that doesn't mean that every new, you know, cl you know, classical composer uh, 
should or orchestral composers should make try and replicate Beethoven or or that that would even be a possible thing. So I think, you know, we just we have to we have to kind of get in our heads that, you know, this stuff is ever evolving and our sense of what is, you know, what has been true does not mean that it will continue to be true going forward and that we can appreciate and embrace and and really enjoy and celebrate the incredible diversity of wine that's out there and that we can think more about quality and complexity and sort of the the methodology behind making wine and a little bit less about whether, you know, I can sit there with uh, a glass full of a mystery wine and get it correct because, <laughs> frankly, that's a really shitty way to run an industry. Well, yeah, man, life is not always a test. And I think that, you know, people who go into the wine world, a, a lot of them, you, you wind up realizing, uh, you know, when you get to know them, they were, they were very competitive in school as well. Uh, they, they did very well in, you know, lots of different subjects. And uh, I think, you know, we shouldn't turn wine into a place where we're also competitive. Because again, as we've said before, and I will say again, guys, at the end of the day, what happens is this yeast, it eats this sugar in this juice and it farts alcohol and the alcohol makes us feel good. It makes us feel relaxed. It makes us, you know, enjoy conversations with others. It makes us, you know, hopefully potentially sometimes, you know, more, uh, willing to go out and meet someone or try a new thing, et cetera. So, you know, let's not take it so freaking seriously all the time. And, uh, I hope everyone after listening to this conversation is a little bit more convinced of that. On that note, Adam, I'm going to go get myself a glass of wine. Awesome. I'll talk to you soon. See ya. Thanks for listening to Vine Pair. We'd love to hear what you think. Feel free to drop us a line at podcast at vinepair.com. And if you really love the show, we'd love if you rate it and leave us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Reviews and ratings really help other people discover the show. Now for the credits. Vine Pair is recorded in New York City at Vine Pair headquarters and in Seattle, Washington at Cloud Studios. Our engineer is Nick Patriot, and the show is produced by Zach Jewell. Our show logo was designed by Daniel Grimberg. Special thanks as well to the entire Vinepair staff, including but not limited to my co-founder, Josh Mallon, and our editor-in-chief, Emily Saladino. Thanks so much for listening, and see you next week.